Hello, and welcome to Public Interest Podcast with your host, Jordan Cooper, where we have been interviewing politicians, activists, advocates, and others since 2016 with the intention of ennobling public service, creating a platform for positive civil discourse, and facilitating dialogue with difference. This show is the antidote for those who are tired of hearing about what's going wrong with the world. We showcase people just like you who are working to leave the world better than they found it. And that's good news. And now a word from former President John F. Kennedy with his views on public service. Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. I'll remind you that this show is made possible by viewers like you. If you appreciate what we're doing here at Public Interest Podcast and enjoy this episode, please contribute $1 at publicinterestpodcast.com. And to express our gratitude, we offer a few freebies to our supporters. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Today's show is brought to you by BarkBox. Uh, BarkBox basically delivers four to six treats uh, for dogs every single month about a, around a surprise theme. So some of the themes that I thought were kind of fun were uh, Jurassic Bark, where everything is kind of uh, dinosaur themed, or New York City, uh, Throwback Thursday, Sniffin' Safari. So a lot of fun. Uh, every month to just get a few treats in the in the mail for your dog. I know that I grew up with a dog. We have a golden retriever right now. And uh, as much as he loves his sticks and tennis balls, uh, when he gets a new toy, he uh, loves tearing it up for the 30 seconds that it lasts. Uh, pretty destructive dog. So anyway, um, if you go uh, to getbarkbox.com slash public interest, you get a one free extra month of BarkBox. So if you use that special URL referencing public interest podcast, just go to getbarkbox.com slash public interest. And when you sign up, you'll get a free extra month of BarkBox. Enjoy. We're here today with Ambassador Tim Romer, former ambassador to India, former Democratic congressman from Indiana's 3rd District. Tim is a former president of the Center for National Policy and a former member for the 9-11 Commission. Tim is a senior vice president at APCO Worldwide and is the founder of the New Democrat Coalition. He's a strategic advisor for Issue 1. Tim, thank you so much for joining us. How are you doing today? Great, Jordan. Good to be with you. And anybody that can get through all that uh, (laughs) as effortlessly and smoothly as you did, I'm impressed. Thanks. So the first uh, thing I'd like to start us with is a quote that you have referenced before uh, in an op-ed. The quote is from former President Teddy Roosevelt. Uh, aggressive fighting for the right uh, is the noblest sport the world affords. Aggressive fighting for the right is the noblest sport the world affords. What does that quote mean to you and how does it apply to your life? Well, starting with my parents, it is important. Uh, Right from the get-go, my mom and dad have always told my brothers and sister that you fight for what you believe in. You stand up for a cause. Mm -hmm. And a good way to do that is through public service. Actually, as as a Catholic family, my mom and dad wanted me initially to be a Catholic priest. And when that was not in the cards, they said, well, you could uh, go into public service. That is just as noble uh, a profession because you're helping people with the American dream, you're helping the vulnerable and the sick in in society, and you are abiding by the United States Constitution. 
So not not you know those those are the kind of values and daring uh, enduring values that my parents taught us to live by. It's interesting that you say your parents encourage you to go into public service as one of the most noble and honorable professions there are. I'm wondering how many uh, what proportion of your constituency at that time also concurred with your parents' point of view, thinking that elected office would be a noble profession. And I'd like to ask if you think there's any change, perhaps a diminishment, of the proportion of of your former constituency that believes in that now. I think that's where we find ourselves today, Jordan, at a crisis. Um, We uh, have seen uh, our level of public trust erode across the board, whether that's in the White House uh, as an institution whether that's in the United States Congress as an institution, whether that's in uh, our private sector or our our banking system. Mm -hmm. People from Indiana to California and Maryland all uh, are now at record levels of distrust and almost hostility towards some of our public institutions. A big factor uh, in this distrust and this hostility is the fact that there is so much money, this tsunami of money flooding into our campaign system. And much of it is dark money. People don't know where it's coming from. They don't know who the donors are. They feel like it is drowning them and their voices. And that's not what is um, fair and right and just in a true democratic system. So for our listeners who aren't familiar with the way money plays out in politics, we just said that money, in particular dark money, might erode trust and lead to greater hostility. So so a listener may hear that and say, well, I understand that large corporations may want certain things to be done and they therefore they hire lobbyists and then maybe legislators listen to something that they, that they want. How does that breed more hostility uh, and more erosion of trust uh, in the public? Well, let's look at it at a couple different levels. First of all, it's it's not only the money that major corporations might give uh, into a campaign. It is um, the fact that uh, more and more of the richest of the rich are giving into campaigns mm-hmm. and giving through new vehicles, uh, post-Citizens United, that are not disclosed. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, uh, you could have a race in Indiana or Arizona or Virginia where the race back when I first ran as a 32-year-old running for my first uh, congressional seat Mm -hmm. cost somewhere, you know, between $400,000 and $700,000 to raise money. Twenty-five and fifty and a hundred dollars, and maybe you could get somebody to give you a thousand dollars. Today, oftentimes, it's not only that that same race has escalated and proliferated in cost mm-hmm. from seven hundred thousand dollars to five million dollars that the candidate has to raise. In addition to that issue and that problem, you have outside groups, 501c4s and individuals that form super PACs that are non-disclosed, that may be raising money from San Francisco and New York. Mm -hmm. They come into that race in Indiana, spend millions of dollars. Nobody knows who they are or who the donors are, Mm -hmm. and they decide the outcome of the race based upon almost entirely negative ads, sometimes 
that are wholly untrue ads and attack ads. So imagine now, Jordan, we have millions of dollars raised by both the Republican and the, the, the Democrat. Then you um, heap onto that outside money with millions of dollars, primarily in negative ads. And the person who you're trying to motivate to vote, mm -hmm. the nurse, the teacher, the plumber, uh, the doctor, the banker, they just see all these negative ads coming from outside the district. Many times they don't know what to believe, who to believe, and oftentimes they're turned off from even voting because of this flood of special interest, dark money that comes in. And if that's not bad enough, now we have the Democratic and the Republican parties oftentimes going to the candidates to recruit them to run in these districts. They don't ask them, Jordan, what's your idea about how to fulfill the American dream for people living uh, here in this district? They don't ask you, you know, what's your experience nor your ideas. They simply ask you, how much can you write in your own checkbook for this seat, and how much can you raise? It's not Those, about merit. It's, it's a, not about merit. It's not about ideas. Mm -hmm. It's not about how you will inspire the country and get things done for the, for the sake of your constituents. It is about one thing, money. So at the same time, uh, and, and the same thing happened when uh, their ideas about Russia influencing the presidential election in 2016 – it is American voters who are pulling the ballots. Uh, yard signs don't vote, uh, TV commercials don't vote, and lots of money doesn't vote. So ultimately, this money only has an impact if it influences the people's decisions for who they do vote when they show up at the poll. So to some extent, I say, well, at least someone, uh, an insider who knows everyone, perhaps you, are you a registered voter in Indiana or D.C. or where are you registered? Uh, I'm registered now in Virginia. In Virginia. So you're a registered voter in Virginia. I'm sure you know many of the different politicians, and I'm sure you've decided a long time before the election who you want to support. And then when you get your television ads and you get your radio ads and your direct mail pieces Maybe you're somewhat inoculated against the influence of paid political expenditures. So my question for you, Tim, is to what extent uh, might or how might Americans inoculate themselves against political expenditures so that despite lots of money being spent, they can make the right decision about which candidate would best represent their interests, regardless of what television ads and direct mail say? So that's a great question, and I think uh, it was uh – you know, Will Rogers or H.L. Mackin or somebody that said the, 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 the cure for the evils of democracy is more democracy. <laughs> How do we get more transparency, mm -hmm. more accountability, more power to the voter and the people mm -hmm. to cure the evils of what has been created over the past several decades? I think part of the, part of the way to solve this and empower the voters is to fix some of the institutions that oversee our elections so people believe in them. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the group that I work with that you mentioned in the introduction, issue one, we have done something very unique in politics. We have started a brand new bipartisan group of former senators and congressmen, 
186 former Democrats and Republicans from the House and the Senate. We have all gotten together and agreed on five different ways to fix our political system. Mm -hmm. One, fix the broken Federal Election Commission, which Mm -hmm. is currently gridlocked and deadlocked between three Democrats and three Republicans. We have bipartisan legislation in the United States Congress to fix it, break the deadlock, get better people to serve on that commission, and put one person in charge to break a 2-2 vote so that you have an independent head of the Mm -hmm. Federal Election Commission. Secondly, uh, we have uh, supported uh, Honesty and Ads Act. You just recently mentioned uh, the, uh, you know, the impact of uh, social media and now how much, how much money is spent on uh, social media, whether it be Facebook or whether it be Reddit or whether it be other forms of social media advertising. Mm-hmm. We have rules that apply to social media that would apply to the Pony Express and the Telegraph system in our election laws. Mm -hmm. We need to update those laws so that things are fair and transparent and accountable and that uh, people know who is buying those ads, whether it be a big donor group in America or whether it be an outside foreign entity like China or Russia trying to influence our elections. And then lastly, I think one of the things we can do is uh, uh, legislation that we support um, that would uh, uh, use technology so that when you raise money, um, it's immediately filed electronically. Uh, it's, it's an e-file system. And I think we now have 50 or 51 co-sponsors in the United States Senate for this legislation. Mm-hmm. Uh, you don't do it by paperwork uh, like you might have done it 100 years ago. You do it online. When you get an app, when you get um, a, a contribution, you can uh, automatically and immediately file. When you make an expenditure, you can file. These are ways to give people back their democracy and their government, have transparency into the system so they know who's trying to influence it, and try to make sure that people believe that in America, it's Americans, all Americans, that have the capability to decide who will represent them in the greatest system ever devised in the history of mankind. Not money, not committee assignments being determined by how much you raise in Congress, not who you know, uh, but who you are, what your ideas are, and how you can work with other people to achieve those ideas. So before we move on to some of the very interesting elements of your bio and your experience, uh, just a quick uh, question about your work with Issue 1. I'm wondering to what extent Congress is facing pressures as current elected officials that former elected officials aren't facing. Another way to state this is you have Issue 1, you have Tom Daschle, a former guest on Public Interest Podcast, Bipartisan Policy Committee. You have a lot of different organizations where it seems very easy to bring together bipartisan supporters of former elected officials, and it seems that they're able to come to an accord on various action items. Yet you don't see anything similar to that in Congress. So is it that there was, it was easier to, to do bipartisan efforts when you were in office 10, 15 years ago than it is now? Or is it something about the difference between being currently accountable to an electorate and previously having been accountable? Why is it that you're able to come to an accord on these five items with former elected officials, 
but the current Congress isn't able to take action? It's a great question. I would say the answer to that question is because the system has become increasingly and progressively worse Mm -hmm. and worse in the last 10 years, 15 years. I spent maybe 10% of my time raising money. Today, when members of Congress are in election cycle, they often spend 50 or 60% of their time raising money. Mm -hmm. Why is that bad? Because they're not working on our national security. Mm -hmm. They're not working on solving the jobs problem in America. They're not working on the opioid crisis. They are instead working on the re-election. They just don't have time to focus on these issues. They don't have the time to focus on it. Secondly, we have a system now up uh, in Washington, D.C., where committee assignments are often uh, handed out based upon how much money you raise, not upon the merit or your experience of your background. So you want to get on the Armed Services Committee on Defense, or you want to get on the Appropriations Committee, or you want to get on the Ways and Means Tax Writing Committee, Mm -hmm. oftentimes the leadership in both the Democratic and Republican parties will come to you and say, Jordan, committee tax. how much uh, the price of power, we call it, Mm -hmm. we've done a report on this through issue one, how much money will you raise for the Democratic or the Republican Party in order to earn this committee assignment? And once you get it, Will you continue to raise hundreds of thousands of dollars in addition to your own campaign fundraising time? Mm -hmm. Now you're going to have to raise money for your committee assignment. Is that dishonest when you have constituents who think they're contributing to their elected official's re-election campaign and then those same dollars are reapportioned to some other part of the nation through the DNC or the RNC? I don't think it's being honest if you're raising money on the phone with somebody in my hometown of South Bend, Indiana, Mm -hmm. asking them for a $50 contribution Mm -hmm. and then simply transferring that to a leadership fund or a a special PAC fund, which goes to Washington State or Arizona for somebody else's campaign. I think we need to do something about the proliferation and the growth of these outside leadership packs and special packs. John Adams once said, uh, democracies don't last long. Uh, They tend to get exhausted and ultimately commit suicide. Mm -hmm. We have a democracy today that is ultimately putting the knife up to its own throat and saying through this tsunami of money, this emphasis on fundraising, all these dark dollars that are floating around the system and the constant dialing for dollars that members are doing that has all come together to a head, we are threatening through a crisis now the faith and the trust of the American people in this system. Well, that's a very disheartening note uh, for our podcast listeners, and I know that everyone listening is very excited to learn about all the many wonderful things that Tim has done previously in his career. So I'd like to touch upon some of your interesting background, uh, just to give some interesting anecdotes to uh, to our listeners. So 
uh, you, were, you mentioned intelligence while you were uh, on the Hill. And in fact, it's an interesting note. Our listeners may be interested. Uh, Tim is a former Hill staffer, and he left being a staffer for uh, a senator, I believe, uh, in order to return as a congressman himself. So that's, that's interesting. Um, but I'd like to ask uh, about your support for the original creation of the Department of Homeland Security and then ultimately your vote against it, and then segue into your participation in the 9-11 Commission. My participation in the 9-11 Commission uh, in, in a blessed and lucky life that I've led is, is uh, one of the, one of the uh, best things that I've been able to participate in. Mm-hmm. It was at a crisis time in our country. It was an opportunity for Democrats and Republicans on the Commission, five Democrats and five Republicans, to work together. But even more important, it was a time to get to know the families uh, of the 9-11 uh, attacks. Mm-hmm. Here are American men and women, mothers and fathers, husbands, daughters, uh, uncles and aunts that lost their children, that lost their loved ones, and they could have retreated from duty. They could have uh, recessed back into you know, their living rooms and said, I want nothing to do with government and nothing to do with service. I want to mourn. The loss of of my child or my loved one. Mm-hmm. Instead, Jordan, these people step forward, mm-hmm. engaged in the political process, mm-hmm. in the most um, you know uh, aggressive fighting for the right, as we talked about with Theodore Roosevelt, uh, and held their government people accountable. Said to members of Congress and to the White House, "You will." pass laws to make our country safer. Mm -hmm. We have found failure across government from the White House to Congress to the FBI and the CIA. And these American citizens held their government accountable, Mm -hmm. attended hearings, got to know how the system worked, and made the system accountable and function and ultimately pass close to 40 laws that have now made America a safer and a better place. That's interesting. So a lot of people will think, well, the 9-11 Commission produced a report. That was the impact of the commission. But you're saying, in fact, it may even have been the creation of the Department of Homeland Security that might have come out of the 9-11 Commission? Well, the the creation of the 9-11 Commission is something John McCain and I worked on together to pass a law after the 9-11 attacks to take some more time Mm -hmm. and analyze uh, what had happened, why, Mm -hmm. and what we should do about it. One of the recommendations put forward was the creation of a Homeland Security Department. Ultimately, I believed at the end of the day that we brought in too many different cultures, too many different bureaucracies, Uh, threw these together in a haphazard way when it should have been a leaner, it should have been a more efficient, it should have been a more dynamic organization than it ultimately became. Mm -hmm. At some point, we're going to need somebody to revisit the Department of Homeland Security and uh, streamline it, make it work better across cultures, Uh, try to ensure that cybersecurity and 21st century threats are embedded in in that department, and we work across government more quickly. For our listeners who aren't aware, to get the perspective of a former Secretary of Homeland Security, listen to a previous episode with Michael Chertoff. Now, Tim, 
I'd like to uh, just ask you a brief question to follow up on September 11th. Of course, on the actual day, September 11th, 2001, thousands of Americans died. Since that time, perhaps as a repercussion directly or indirectly of the September 11th attacks, many more thousands of Americans have died in Afghanistan and Iraq. How would you evaluate America's response to the September 11th attacks in terms of protecting American lives? Well, you know, that's a complicated question. First of all, um, if you look at uh, the fact that we did pass a number of reforms, new laws, new ways of thinking to protect the homeland, we have not had a significant uh, level of attack uh, on the same status uh, of the 9-11 attacks that resulted in almost 3,000 people dying. So we've done things better to share intelligence across government between the CIA and the FBI, between abroad intelligence and domestic intelligence in order to make the country safer. The, the second part of this question looks at, you know, I voted when I was in Congress for the Afghanistan war to go into Afghanistan to dislodge the Taliban and those who had attacked the United States on 9-11, but I did not vote for a 16-year-old war. I did not vote for an effort to instill democracy in Afghanistan, which is an, an entirely different order. I did not vote for legislation uh, that would have resulted in uh, – uh, you know, a, a regional conflict now mm -hmm. that has taken significant American treasure and taking us off other foreign policy priorities that are uh, extremely important in the world today. There are some that argue in the foreign policy world that if we continue to get bogged down in the Middle East, in Iraq and Afghanistan, with trillions of dollars on a war effort in both places, and we see Libya, we see Yemen, we see Syria, and problems and challenges there, it makes it very difficult for us to confront some of the other problems in our foreign policy um, world. So on the topic of foreign policy, um, you left the U.S. Congress, and subsequently, a few years later, I think about seven years later, you began rigorously campaigning for then U.S. Senator Barack Obama in your previously Republican state of Indiana, which he eventually carried. As a result of your strenuous efforts to elect Barack Obama as the President of the United States, uh, some would say uh, that you were rewarded with a post as Ambassador of the United States to India. Can you speak about that process, your experience as Ambassador in India, uh, and ultimately, uh, within the context of foreign policy, what we were trying to accomplish there. Sure, but I, I do want to go back and talk for just a, a minute about uh, uh, working uh, for uh, Senator Barack Obama in 2008. Sure. Uh, and it's relevant to the challenge uh, that uh, parties, and particularly the Democratic Party, faces today. We uh, had not won the state of Indiana and the Democratic Party since 1964 in the LBJ, the Lyndon Baines Johnson landslide. Uh, we worked very hard on winning Indiana in 2008, and it came down to a fairly simple uh, formula, mm -hmm. one that's not easy to implement and execute, 
And it takes a great candidate like Barack Obama, but it also takes, uh, uh, you know, uh, implementation of, of, of tactics and strategy to do it. One, we showed up in a state where they weren't expecting a Democrat to work it hard. Mm-hmm. Uh, two, uh, we listened to people that were going through extreme dislocation and pain and agony from job loss, uh, globalization, trade, NAFTA, uh, automation. And you had credibility there because you voted against NAFTA, though you had supported the general agreement on tariffs and trade. Correct. I did not uh, embrace all trade agreements saying that they would benefit America. I looked at them skeptically, but also in a way that we need to engage the world. We have the best workers. We have the best businesses. Mm-hmm. We invent uh, the best technology. How do we make sure we, we uh, have this be a win-win scenario that results in jobs? So the third part we did with Obama, we showed up, we listened to people, and we had answers mm-hmm. that people could relate to and engage with and connect to. Mm-hmm. And that resulted in winning Indiana, winning the Midwest, winning red and purple states and putting them in the blue column, mm-hmm. and winning the presidency. That can be done in 2020 uh, with the right candidate. Mm-hmm. So the, the fact that some people advocate writing off the Midwest mm-hmm. – uh, you can win by redistricting in New York and Maryland and Virginia and, and California. That's absolutely nonsense to me. We can win. We need to reach out to all voters, particularly in the great Midwest, uh, and uh, we, we can do it based upon the strategy that worked in, in 2008. Uh, you mentioned India. Uh, both the president and the vice president, Joe Biden, came to me after the election and said, we'd like you to continue your public service, work in government, whether that be a cabinet uh, post, or we have something interesting to talk to you about, uh, the ambassadorship to India. Which which, wasn't a cabinet post. Did you ever consider a cabinet post? uh, I did. Especially uh, since you had been expressed interest with the formation of DHS and you had your own ideas about how to do it better. I, I did think about it, and in CIA. comparison, uh, well, there were a couple different things that we talked about. But in fact, uh, when I when I when I thought about uh, this post in India, and when the president uh, talked to me uh, about what he wanted to do, how he wanted to make India priority, uh, India would be kind of this linchpin with a pivot or a rebalance to Asia. Asia's it would be a focal point of his foreign policy. It would be. Um, Emphasis on a democracy of 1.2 billion people, mm-hmm. helping to balance uh, an aggressive rise by China, mm-hmm. uh, people that shared our values of democracy and human rights and freedom. That sounded to me to be a great post and a great opportunity. And you visited many different states in India. Uh, you mentioned uh, that uh, you, that uh, you were able to promote uh, a lot of trade deals, although it was. Uh, perhaps one trade deal that that shortened your tenure um, with billions of dollars that might have gone for Air Force to, air, uh, fighter jets. So I was, I was wondering if that is such a important part of Obama's foreign policy. You had the opportunity to choose domestic positions, but you went over here to be a part of it. You know, in politics, you're no stranger to politics. There's there's going to be losses, right? You're not going to win every fight on Capitol Hill. So you lose one fight in India. Some American companies lose out on a major contract that goes to France and the Netherlands. 
why do you bow out? Why don't you just stick in there and say, all right, we lost this one. Let's let's go for the next inning. Well, you know, the press that says that uh, there was any, you know, uh, reporting or indication that I bowed out was just absolutely wrong. Okay. It's factually incorrect. Um, I had announced uh, uh, weeks ahead of time mm-hmm. uh, to the White House that I was going to step down after two years. I had told the president when I accepted the job, uh, when he first offered it to me, I have my kids that are going to be going to college and I'm not going to be in Delhi when they're going to school in Indiana. Yeah. I'm going to be back home. Uh, we, we often find that, um, you know, if you look at John Huntsman or, or Gary Locke or others that uh, serve uh, in these high-level, high-pressure, high-stress. ambassador to China. Locke was ambassador to, to China as well, too. They, they only go for a year and a half or two years. Uh, so, uh, you know, there was nothing in my decision to return home uh, attached to a, you know, a win or a loss on uh, trade deals. And in fact, um, we helped elevate the trade status between the United States and India from about the 25th highest position mm-hmm. to the 12th highest position in trade. We announced when uh, President Obama came to India on his first visit in 2010 uh, billions of dollars in trade to the Indians. And it, by the way, was the right kind of trade because they were C-17s that were manufactured in the United States, mm-hmm. creating jobs in places uh, back home in, in our uh, great United States of America. There were gas turbine engines creating jobs, manufacturing jobs in South Carolina. Mm-hmm. That's the win-win scenario that we continue to try to talk about in our trade deals. How do you try to make sure that when you engage in trade in the world, it is to the benefit of the American people and the benefit to American jobs and the benefit to the trade status uh, of a moving toward a surplus rather than just simply doing trade for trade itself? Two more questions as we approach the end of the podcast. First one, you clearly have a lot of energy. From a political perspective, you're still somewhat of a young guy. Do you have any interest? I will tell my wife you said that. I like that, Jordan. I, 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 I like that description. Do, do you, have, you have the passion. You clearly have ideas. Do you have any interest in returning to public life? My youngest of the four is now in high school, and uh, once she gets out of high school and she's on her way to college like her siblings, uh, I could uh, easily think about getting back in. In fact, I am back in in some ways with this effort with Issue 1 and with trying to restore trust and uh, visibility and accountability in our great democracy. This is, Jordan, this is beyond money in politics and dark money in politics. This is what Jefferson and Washington and Adams talked about, what they fought for against the most powerful army and navy in the world for our independence. They talked about a system where everybody and anybody has a voice not a king or a queen, not somebody of wealth. It wasn't an aristocracy or a monarchy. It was a government of the people, by the people, and for the people. And now we have a government more and more that's determined by wealthy people, 
special interests, and dark money. So we need to fight like we did 230 years ago for this system. Make sure we're fighting because fighting for the right in the mightiest of fashion, speaking you know, truth to power, is what will restore uh, our people's faith in this government. And we are no doubt about it in a crisis right now. The final question, and you just alluded to it, I often ask guests about their motivations and their legacy. Clearly, you're motivated to bring America back to her original promise, as stated by the Founding Fathers. Can you speak about what you hope your legacy will be? You've again spoke as, as a member of Issue 1, desiring a legacy to reduce the influence of money in politics. You clearly have a legacy in international trade, in intelligence, in domestic and international security. Could you speak perhaps to the people who originally sent you into public life, the people of South Bend, Indiana. And suppose you're listening to this episode right now. What would you tell them about how you stayed true to your promise and what you hope at the end of your career will have been the impact of your time in public service? Well, to be you know, blunt with you and, and perfectly honest with you, Jordan, I, I hope that there's always a balance in my life that – as a husband, I'm a good husband to my wife. As a father, my most important job is to be a good example to my four children. That I'm a good American, apart from my public service as a public servant. That I'm a good citizen. That I try to do the right thing in an honorable and a respectful way. We're losing a lot of that honor and respect for one another, that unity that we've always had in the United States, especially post-Civil War. What is my public service you know, legacy that I'd like to live uh, and, and see lived out? And when I go back home to Indiana, what people mention to me, I think they mention two or three things. They say, Tim, you tried to do what was right for the state and the country, not only what was right to your party. Secondly, you always talked about the American dream and making it available to more and more people. And thirdly, uh, you seem to have a smile on your face and have energy and have fun while you were doing it and tried to you know, do the right thing and the honest thing. I never claim that I've been perfect. I've made a ton of mistakes in my life and I try to own up to them as quickly as I can and honestly as I can. But I think what we need in America today is you know, Democrats and Republicans coming together, respecting one another to do the right thing, that we have the best interests of our country in mind. We're going to get things done on jobs. We're going to get things done on restoring the American dream. We're going to restore the vibrancy of our great democratic system, our republic. And uh, we can agree to disagree on that, but we shouldn't be poisonous and we shouldn't, uh, you know, be calling each other, you know, the kind of rude and crude names that we are today, tearing down the entire system. That has been Ambassador and former Congressman Tim Romer. He was ambassador to India and represented Indiana's third congressional district in Congress for 12 years. Uh, former member of the 9-11 Commission, uh, and as we mentioned, a member of Issue 1. Tim speaks about fundamentally restoring trust uh, if, uh, in the American ideal and the American promise uh, and restoring respect in political discourse. He speaks about uh, and always aspiring, perhaps every birthday, the wish that Tim makes over his birthday candles to, be good, to become a good American, to continue to be a good citizen, to always know what is the right thing and to pursue it steadfastly despite all obstacles. 
Uh, and with a smile, with energy, and a sense of fun and enjoyment in public service, Tim lends himself to the advancement of the American dream for all Americans. Tim, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, George. Pleasure. Today's show is brought to you by Warby Parker. They're an online eyeglasses company that for $95 provides you prescription lenses and frames, which is basically a third to a fourth the cost of getting eyeglasses uh, traditionally through your uh, optometrist. I know that I have terrible vision and uh, I'm always needing uh, to pay a few hundred dollars when I get a new pair of eyeglasses. So that's the thing I like about Warby Parker is it's basically the same quality you'd otherwise get, but it's for a fraction of the cost. So if you go to warbyparkertrial.com slash public interest, uh, using that uh, URL at the very end, uh, referencing this podcast, uh, you'll get a special free five-day trial try-on with five pairs, five days, 100% free. They ship it out for free, and you can return them all for free. So again, that's warbyparkertrial.com slash public interest. Uh, enjoy. This has been another episode of Public Interest Podcast with your host, Jordan Cooper, where we interview politicians, activists, advocates, and others who seek to improve the state of the world. I'll remind you to subscribe on publicinterestpodcast.com, iTunes, or your favorite podcast listening platform. And please join the conversation by calling 240-630-0380 or emailing engage at publicinterestpodcast.com. Thanks for listening.